This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. The title for today's talk is Nothing is Lacking. Ordinary Self is the Way. I'm going to start uh, with a reading from, for those of you who are new to Zen, a a very famous collection of koans is called The Gateless Gate. And uh, this particular story is called Case 19 from the Gateless Gate. And it's called Ordinary Mind is the Way. Each koan has a, a little story called the case, a little commentary by the person who collected them, and finally a little verse at the end. So I'll, I'll read you these out and then I'll give the talk. <clears throat> the case. Josh Yu earnestly asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, the ordinary mind is the way. Josh Yu asked, should I direct myself toward it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn towards it, you go against it. Josh Yu asked, If I do not try to turn towards it, how can I know it is the way? Nansen answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened. Mumon's commentary. Mumon is the, the monk who collected the coins. Nansen was asked a question by Joshua and Nansen's base was shattered and melted away. He could not justify himself. Even though Joshua has come to realization He will have to delve into it for another 30 years before he can realize it fully. The verse, the spring flowers, the moon in autumn, the cool breezes of summer, the winter's snow. If idle concerns do not cloud the mind, this is man's happiest season. We'll also include women in that as well. So, this koan is, um, features a character called Joshu, who's a very famous teacher in the Zen tradition. And there's Chao Cho in the Chinese, Joshu in Japanese. And um, apparently he had a great enlightenment when he was 18 years old, and then served as Nansen's assistant for 40 years. And when his teacher Nansen died, he then went on pilgrimage for another 30, 20 years or so, 
And he, he began teaching around about the age of 80 years old. So there's hope for us all yet. And he continued to teach till he uh, reached the ripe old age of 120, which was pretty normal in those days. It is rumored that Bodhidharma lived till he was 150. So there you go. The more you practice Sazen, the likelihood is you'll live a long life. So this koan really, to me anyway, is about um, how we all start off by searching or seeking. But uh, in the end, it's the, the seeking or the searching, although necessary, tends to lead us in the wrong direction. So Nansen is trying to point Joshua towards the way. But of course, no teacher can show us the way, really. We have to discover it for ourselves. In this talk, I'm going to um, try and um, make sense of this koan from a more psychological dimension. So, as many of you know, Zen originated out of the encounter between Chinese culture and philosophy, especially Taoism and Indian Buddhism. Similarly, the legacy that I inherited from my teacher, Barry Majid, um, explores the encounter between Western psychotherapy and Zen Buddhism. Each perspective can deepen our appreciation of the other and our understanding of the other. So today's talk is a continuation of this ongoing dialogue between Western psychotherapy and Zen. In our discussion last fortnight, we talked about making friends with death and finding our home, Nirvana, in this world rather than seeking it in some kind of transcendence of our ordinary self, in an afterlife, or in a true self that is behind or above or higher than our ordinary self. It's almost like the assumption is there's always something missing from our experience of our ordinary self. So we go in search. In today's talk, I will explore some possible explanations as to how this sense of, of lack arises. And I'll be challenging the idea found in many commentaries that the ordinary self is always experienced as an egocentric or separate self that is inherently insecure. Rather, I will suggest that the ordinary self is composed of many different self-states and only some of these states, the egocentric states, feel a painful sense of lack at their core. But others may feel a deep sense of acceptance and non-separation from the world. As is suggested in case 19 of the gateless gate, maybe the ordinary self, the ordinary mind, when experienced from the perspective of emptiness, just like the spring flowers and the autumn moon, is the way. We don't have to add or subtract anything from it. Zen 
teaches us that our ordinary self has no inherent existence. It is essentially empty of separate existence. It is impermanent and interdependent, just like our body. However, suffering arises when we identify with our egocentric self-states. That is the feeling that I am at the center of the world and everything else revolves around me. It is true that much of the time our default position is one of dualistic egocentricity. And we can cling on to this in much the same way that folk clung to the belief that the earth was at the center of the universe. However, having clarified this, I think there is still a tendency in some Zen teachings to forget that our ordinary self, our sense of personal existence, also provides us with the tender feelings and precious moments of intimacy that enable us to see the world through non-dualistic eyes. So it is important not to conflate our experience of ordinary self with only egocentric states, which in traditional Zen are understood as a form of delusion, which prevents us from seeing our true self. Our egocentric self-states will always be around, popping up every now and then. But there is much more breadth and depth to our ordinary self than just our egocentric self-states. I will suggest that the best way of understanding egocentric or dualistic self-states is that at their core, they are caught in a sense of lack. However, to limit our appreciation of our ordinary self, to the experience of egocentric states misses a more nuanced and balanced appreciation of the ordinary self, which we can gain from an appreciation of humanistic psychology or the psychology of health. The psychology of health was developed by humanistic psychologists after the Second World War and is reflected in the work of Abraham Maslow and Heinz Kuhut, and posited an inherent drive to mental health and well-being that was universal. Humanistic psychology of health reflected the growth of optimism that a new world order was possible following the mass tragedy of the Second World War. The creation of the United Nations and the International Declaration of Human Rights embodied this optimism that given the right environment, humanity would flourish and find ways to live together in peace. While we are commonly caught up in egocentric self-states, there are many other self-states we can experience. For example, creative, compassionate, intimate and altruistic self-states and both psychotherapy and Zen in their different ways seek to facilitate this kind of growth, including the ability to tolerate self-states that are often kept hidden from ourselves and others because they cause us to feel bad, unworthy and undesirable. These self-states are understood as the byproducts of relational trauma that inhibit the growth of positive self-states 
Both psychotherapy and Zen seek to enable the acceptance of negative self-states and at the same time facilitate the expansion of positive self-states. A humanistic, contextual, developmental perspective on the self enables us to understand how these often contradictory self-states can be integrated within this process of inherent growth towards health and well-being. Indeed, towards an appreciation of the wonder of being alive. Both Zen and psychotherapy can be characterized as enhancing our sense of aliveness or liveliness. Whereas relational trauma and all of us have experienced forms of devaluation. Disrupts this natural maturational process and exuberance of being alive, leaving in its wake a sense of deadness or chronic dysphoria. Contemporary humanistic psychologies, such as relational self-psychology, like Zen, recognize that our ordinary self is always relational and contextual and has no inherent self-existence. Relational self-psychology is a theory of human development which has its origins in the work of the founder of self-psychology, Heinz Kohut. As many, many of you know that the Barry's other teacher apart from Joker Beck was Heinz Kohut. So it dovetails into Zen practice when non-dualistic self-states of non-separation are understood as developmental achievement. As Barry Majid states, to non-dualistically inhabit reality does not involve regression, but constitutes true developmental maturity. Similarly, the work of the Australian psychotherapist, Russell Mears, who developed the conversational model of psychotherapy, also supports the understanding that our ordinary self, given the right environmental conditions, will experience states equivalent to a Zen Satori. He speaks of feeling states varying in ranges of complexity that can be hierarchically organized, but all forms of feeling are based in the body. The highest level he calls a sense of spirit. He quotes from the American psychologist and philosopher William James from his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, published at the beginning of the 20th century, in which James likened this state to a mystical experience resulting, resulting in a sense of vastness, of union. William James defined the ordinary self simply as, quote, an awareness of the stream of consciousness. Self conceived in this way is not a thing or a structure, but a process. The stream of consciousness is best understood as a rich narrative flow, which has its origins within a special kind of conversation. William James saw the self as double, a unity made up of awareness on one end of the pole and the contents of awareness on the other end. He named awareness the I or the knower and the objects of awareness as the me or the known. However, unlike some contemporary spiritual teachers who teach that only the I is real, 
and that we should not identify with the objects of awareness. James was clear that awareness and the contents of awareness form an inseparable unity. According to Mears, the self comes into being in what is known as proto-conversation between, between mother and child. The mother brings forth the me of the child in her smile and the tone of her voice. The baby begins to feel known and recognized. This generates a sense of pleasure and well-being, which is at the core of what is personal. The me that is recognized by others in the world is a different kind of me. In a sense, no one can know what it feels like to be me. They can't feel or see my inner me, but they can see my outer me, what we normally refer to as my identity, my body, my face, my age. We can identify as a certain gender and nationality and occupation and so on. Importantly, Mears draws a distinction between these two kinds of me. The me that constitutes my inner life is what Mears calls the self. The me that is identifiable to others, Mears calls identity. Our identity has a sense of continuity. Even though I age, I still identify with my body. Whereas my inner self is subject to moment by moment fluctuations and is constantly changing. Returning to Zen, we can see how the self that Mears describes is a perfect description of an empty self, a self that has no independent existence. However, problems begin through the process of attachment to self-states and identities. That is, some states and identities are seen as being highly desirable and others less so. We get caught in the dualism of have and have not. We wish to have the desirable states and identities and we want to reject what are regarded as undesirable states and identities, which creates duality, separation, that leads to suffering. Being caught in have or have not duality is a good definition of egocentric self-states. Concern with our place in the social hierarchy and where we can also identify with seeing our own identity as bad, unworthy or undesirable. We can identify with the generic social gaze with how we imagine others see us as successful or unsuccessful. Interestingly, the emergence of the differentiation between self and identity begins at about 18 months of age. It is around this age that the child begins to recognize the image in the mirror. This tends to correspond to a language that is more egocentric and adaptational. For example, that is mine, not yours. And we start to think of how we can use others as a means to an end. At around the same age, the child also begins to engage in symbolic play, which is the precursor of the inner self, characterized by a form of language that is associative, poetical and intimate. When the capacity to engage in play is stunted because of adverse family environments, the language of adaptation becomes dominant and the development of the inner self is arrested 
leading to a form of personal existence that Mears describes as alienation. In my view, egocentricity is best understood as a defense against relational trauma, which disrupts the emergence of self. The child has no choice but to survive and adapt as best they can. As Majid states, dualism constitutes a developmental failure. Or as Mia says, people who grew up in abusive environments become stimulus and trapped, forever hypervigilant for danger. The child who cannot engage in symbolic play is caught in the zone of adaptation because they are always on the lookout for danger. The self is inner, but the gaze of the unsafe child is fixated on that which is outer or on somatic symptoms. They are alert to stimuli that signify threat. As the child grows into an adult, they are still caught in repetitive scripts of worrying and ruminating about the safety of self or the non-acceptance or rejection of self because they have grown up internalizing a dangerous relational world. Unlike Freud, who saw human culture precariously balanced between what he called the death instinct and the life instinct, where the tilt would have been more towards the, the death instinct and destruction, self-psychology has a more optimistic view of development postulating a drive towards health, which gets interrupted by relational trauma. One of the most common forms of relational trauma is devaluation, which becomes internalized on a continuum, ranging from your normal kind of self-criticism, which most of us have, that little inner critic, to vicious forms of self-hate. When children experience covert and overt devaluation, this begins to shape their experience of self. Shameful self-states self can be identified as the real me. In adult life, they are triggered by contextual circumstances that resemble the original trauma. These shameful states or traumatic scripts involve memories, but they are experienced as the realities of the present situation. They are typically constituted by negative identity conclusions, such as I'm worthless, I'm a worthless piece of shit, I'll never be good enough, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate. Because these self-states are often hidden from others, because they are shameful, when disclosed to another, for example, in therapy, they often feel like this is the real me and all the rest is a sham. These days, this experience is so widely reported, I will often witness clients describing themselves as identifying with what has become known as the imposter syndrome, where relatively successful people fear being exposed as a fraud. At the core of egocentric self-states is a painful sense of lack or inner emptiness, which is defended against by the development of protective strategies such as trying to please. This painful sense of inadequacy, this feeling that something is missing, leads to the compulsion to seek what is missing in the external world. This seeking can take the form of numerous self-improvement projects, 
or it can take the form of seeking the perfect intimate partner, or it can manifest as religious or spiritual seeking. However, what is not realized is that this painful sense of lack is a memory, which, as I previously mentioned, is triggered by events that resemble in some way the original trauma. For example, our partner criticizes our work and the sense of lack immediately arises. The inner emptiness that is experienced is the memory of the emptiness of self. When we literally felt like a nobody. However, this emptiness is a traumatically induced emptiness. This sense of lack or emptiness is not the result of having a self, as some Buddhists claim. Rather, it is the result of not having a self. And it is important to distinguish this. As Jack Angler once said, you have to be somebody before you can be a nobody. So finally, we should also acknowledge that egocentricity is well suited to life in a competitive economy founded upon the principle of self-interest. Commentators have spoken of the age of narcissism and the decline of the altruistic ideal. This encourages individuals and families to strive to be successful with success being measured in monetary value. This can encourage an anti-social mentality that is against taxation and social spending. In fact, any suggestion that taxation should be raised is met with being denounced as a socialist. This encourages a kind of me-first mentality. Another common example of egocentricity is the need for people and reality in general to conform to our requirements. When this doesn't occur, we experience egocentric emotional reactions. This is one aspect of what we mean when we recite caught in a self-centered dream holding to self-centered thoughts. However, we also need to recognize that with psychological growth and maturity, individuals building on their capacity for empathy can also see how we are all interdependent and that happiness is a shared experience. We see that our own happiness is dependent on a social system which takes care of our environment and our community and prevents poverty and homelessness and takes care of individuals who are too ill or too old to look after themselves. It is at this point that human growth and development, seen from a humanistic perspective, dovetails into our practice of Zen. Developmental theorists such as Abraham Maslow and Heinz Kohut have observed that we have the potential to transcend a narrow egocentric focus and become aware of the need to attend to the needs of others as well as ourselves. Nirvana or non-separation is not something we gain from seeking. It arises when we stop seeking and realize that which is always here and now. As case 19 teaches us, we cannot go in search of the way. We are already in the way. As soon as we step out of the way by seeking something we think we don't have, we are caught again in duality. We remain forever the donkey in pursuit of the carrot dangling somewhere always in front of us. However, it seems that many of us are destined to continue to be donkeys, believing that the true self is something other than what we already are. Our true self, whether we know it or not, is what I am already from moment to moment. 
Realization is seeing myself as already empty. This realization collapses any distinction between true self and ordinary self. And that is what, is a, what we mean by ordinary mind is the way. <laughs>